Malcolm Muggeridge was a famous English journalist. His father was a socialist, one of the early Labour Party members of Parliament in England. And in his 20s, Muggeridge was attracted to communism. He spent most of his life as a Marxist and socialist. He went to live in the Soviet Union in 1930, and that experience turned him into a forceful anti-communist. During World War II, he worked with the British government as a soldier and as a spy, and he became a world-renowned journalist and an editor of one of the most famous magazines in Britain. But toward the very end of his life, by the mercy and grace of God, he was saved. He became a Christian. And when he looked back on all his years, all that he saw was just wasted time. He had wasted so much of his life on things that did not matter. And he finally came to know what really mattered. Muggeridge kept a detailed diary of much of his life, And he developed it into two volumes of an autobiography. And he called it Chronicles of Wasted Time. His conclusion was, don't waste your life. Start spending it now for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the important truths that God is going to teach us in our text today. From the Apostle Paul as he continues to write to his dear disciple, Timothy. So we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. So far, Paul has been writing to Timothy, and this is his last will and testament. He is in prison. He is sentenced to death for his faith. He's awaiting execution, and he's writing Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, who's discouraged and fearful because of the opposition and persecution that he's experiencing, to guard the gospel, to fan into flame the gift that he's been given as a pastor, to not be fearful, but to know that he's been given the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of power and love and self-control. He's told him how to deal with false prophets and false teachers. And he's warned him that times of greater difficulty will come. But he's to be strengthened in his faith and his union with Jesus Christ. And Paul warns him that he must endure suffering as a believer and as a pastor. And he must be steadfast and remain committed to the Word of God, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness to equip God's people. And then last week we covered the beginning of chapter 4 in verses 1 through 5 where Paul charges Timothy to preach the Word. And we saw the solemnity of that charge. We saw the substance of that charge. We saw the situation in which he was charged to preach the Word and then the charge of being steadfast to always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill his ministry. Well, Paul is charging him to preach the Word of God, not just because of, of the coming apostasy and how people will 
not endure sound teaching, but he's also encouraging him and charging him to do this because he is about to die. Paul, that is. And he wants Timothy to take up the mantle and to carry it onward. And so to do this in our text today, he's encouraging him to look at a faith perspective of the present and the past and the future. This is what Paul is doing in this text, and he's encouraging Timothy to have this same perspective. So follow along as I read 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. This is the Word of God. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Thus far the reading of God's word. Paul did not want to sadden Timothy, but to encourage him in the work that lay ahead for him, that every part of his life was to be viewed as a sacrifice to God, and therefore it is not a wasted life. It's a life that's full of meaning and purpose. Paul uses different metaphors to describe this faith perspective of the present, the past, and the future. And so the first point that God wants us to see from our text is Paul's faith perspective of the present, of the present. Verse 6, the first half, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul is in this dark, horrible prison. He's suffering. He's no, he knows that his, his earthly circumstances are not going to improve. But how does he view this period of time, this suffering? He views it as a drink offering being poured out to God. Now, according to God's ceremonial law in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 15, God commanded the priest to sacrifice the lamb on the altar in the tabernacle, and he commanded the priests to offer a drink offering right before the sacrifice was burned. And this drink offering was to be about a gallon of wine to be poured on top of or on side of the altar. It was the final act of the entire sacrificial ceremony. And Paul used this word, poured out, to indicate the the certainty of this event. It pictures this gradual ebbing away of Paul's physical life. It's a final offering that he's offering to the Lord. You know, when Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he was imprisoned for the first time in Rome, and he wasn't sure whether his life was going to be taken at that point or not. And so he wrote in Philippians 2, 17, which we read earlier, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. In that situation, He saw that he was a sacrifice to the Lord and and his life was being poured out for the Lord. And this may be the end. It may not be the end. 
but he was glad that he could do this to serve the Lord, to glorify the Lord, and to build up God's people. Some might think, what a waste. Paul could have done so many other things with his intellect, with his experience, with his gifts that possibly wouldn't have gotten him into prison facing death. You know, I think of the woman who poured out her expensive perfume on Jesus and many thought it was such a waste. But Jesus noted its value because it was offered in love and faith and gratitude for for His grace. And in a figurative way, it was an anointing for His burial. So when we service the Lord, when we sacrifice for Him in every part of our life, even the suffering right unto death, it is a fitting offering and it is of great value to God. Paul says in the second half of verse 6, and the time of my departure has come. The word departure here means unloose. It's a word that's commonly used in referring to the untying of a boat from its mooring, a sailboat, so that it can leave the dock and, 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 and drift out and be powered by the wind to a new destination. When I was growing up as a teenager, I lived near Long Island Sound, and I had a friend who had an 18-foot Hobie cat, a catamaran. And we would go out sailing on the Long Island Sound and it was so thrilling and exhilarating to catch the wind in the sails and to gain speed away from land to your destination. Well, you see, Paul knew death was near, but he didn't think of it as an end to his life. It was a departure. He was certain that his life would go on. One commentator said the word departure radiates sweet, triumphant continuance. Paul used the same word in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23 when he was wrestling with whether he goes to be with the Lord or whether he stays and ministers among God's people. He said, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. There's that same word. And be with Christ for that is far better. Well, the second point that God wants us to see from our text is Paul's faith perspective of the past. His faith perspective of the past. He writes in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Here he looks back on his past as a believer and he uses two favorite metaphors of his about the Christian life. He says, like a soldier, his life began in Christ as a battle. Thirty years earlier, he was converted on the road to Damascus. And after a time in the Arabian desert, he traveled among the ancient world. Three missionary journeys, preaching the gospel, planting and establishing churches, teaching God's word, discipling leaders, And he had to contend with all kinds of obstacles. His own people who hated him. False teachers, false believers, government leaders. 
even those in the spiritual realm, as he mentions in Ephesians 6, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It involved a constant battle with the evil influences of the world and his own nature's sinful tendencies, the flesh, and then the devil and his demons. Paul had a battle against worry, against loneliness, and against disappointments as well. And earlier in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 3, he tells Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. And then in his first letter, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. It is a good fight, a good warfare, because of the excellence of the cause. It is fought for the glory of God, the glory of Christ and His kingdom and the gospel. But he also says he has finished the race. Paul used this metaphor of an athlete competing in a foot race, in a marathon. The Bible compares the life of faith to a race several times, such as the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Paul doesn't say, I came in first. No, he says, I finished the race. It's a marathon. And this race follows the planned course that God lays out for each believer as he laid it out for Paul. You remember back in in the book of Acts, he is giving his last address to the Ephesian elders and he says in verse 24 of chapter 20, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He saw his life as a course to be run. And then he says he has kept the faith. Usually when Paul refers to the faith, he's not just referring to an act of abiding trust in Jesus as his Savior, but he's also referring to the content of the faith, the apostolic teachings, the doctrines of God's Word, and specifically of Christ and the gospel. You might wonder here, is Paul boasting? No. He's written elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He's boasting in the Lord here. In verse 7, it's not noticeable in the English, but in the Greek, The emphasis is not on the pronoun I, but on the fight, the race, and the faith that God has enabled him to endure. And so this was the holy passion of Paul. This was his objective in life that God had helped him by grace to pursue and to finish. And so Paul is challenging Timothy, and Paul is challenging all believers that these ought to be our goals in life as well. But finally, 
Paul turns his eyes to what is ahead. And so the third point God wants us to see from our text is Paul's faith perspective of the future. Of the future. Look at verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice, this is Paul's certain expectation, his confidence of the future. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And the Greek emphasizes here that it is certain, it is secure, it is stored away for him, it is absolutely safe. No one will deprive him of it. What is safely laid up for him? The crown of righteousness. This is the ultimate crown. This is the crown from which all other crowns will come. Paul is talking about the ultimate permanent state of righteousness that will be given after death to him and to all believers, all who have loved his appearing. What is so special about this crown? Well, the Bible says that God is righteousness. He's perfect righteousness. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly pure. And God made mankind to reflect these attributes, these righteous attributes of God, His perfection. He requires all of His people to be righteous. And yet, Adam fell into sin, and so did all of mankind. And therefore, we are born with a sinful nature. We are born with unrighteousness. We are born rebellious against God. And God gave us His laws to show us how we fall short of His righteous requirements. We either passively or actively violate His commandments in thought, word, and deed. But God's requirements still stands. He requires perfect righteousness. And He cannot have fellowship. He cannot accept those who do not have perfect righteousness. Well, in addition to this, God is also just. He must judge. He must punish all unrighteousness. He calls this sin. And we cannot live a perfect righteous life. And we cannot pay the debt that we owe to God for our unrighteousness. The Bible also says that we are spiritually dead in our hearts. We do not truly seek after the true God. We cannot truly repent of our sins. We cannot have genuine faith in and of ourselves. And so you see this lack of righteousness, this sin that we have, this inability to atone for our sin, that is the condition of mankind. This is the bad news. And therefore, God had to do something. And God in His grace and mercy determined before the beginning of time to provide His people with His perfect righteousness. To provide for atonement for our sins. How did He do this? He did it through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. He sent His Son to this planet 
the second person of the Trinity, God Himself to take on human flesh and a human nature yet without sin and yet still remaining God in order to be our substitute. To live a righteous life on our behalf. To provide us with perfect human righteousness that would be credited to the account of those who would believe in Him. But He also came to go to the cross as the perfect lamb to sacrifice himself to take on the sin debt of his people and to receive the judgment that we deserved through his suffering and bleeding and dying on the cross he atoned for our sins and the third day after his physical death he rose from the grave and his resurrection validated his claims as God and Messiah, confirmed that he had victory over death and sin for his people, confirmed that his righteousness and atonement was accepted by the Father on our behalf. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, when God regenerates a person's heart and gives them the Holy Spirit, they recognize their sin, their inability to be righteous and to atone for their own sins. And they turn from relying on themselves and a life of sin and they rely on Jesus, who He is and what He came to do for their salvation. And when that occurs, they're united with Christ. They are indwelt by the Spirit. They're adopted into God's family. They're made members of His kingdom. They're declared completely righteous before God and forgiven of all their sins. And they're given the gift of heaven for eternity with God. And so you see, perfect righteousness and forgiveness is the greatest need for mankind. And believers have Christ's righteousness transferred to their account. They've been legally declared righteous before God. And it's a righteousness that's not our own. It's an alien righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. The righteous judge gave us His righteousness. But you see, believers on this earth haven't yet been glorified. We have not yet been glorified. Although God already regards the believer as righteous, he has not yet been brought into complete righteousness in terms of our experience and our character. We are still sinners. And progressive sanctification is taking place. We are more and more becoming like Christ, more and more becoming holy and sanctified and righteous, but we aren't there yet. And so we await that day when what is legally declared of us, we will experience in reality. And that is the crown of righteousness that will be laid upon us. That's the great inheritance that we look forward to. As 1 Peter 1.4 says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we've seen this faith perspective of Paul, of his present situation, his past, 
and his future. Well, you're probably thinking, that's great. So what? What difference does this make to me? Well, let me give you three application points as to how I think this makes a difference for all of us. And this first one is a question. Do you know you have the righteousness of Christ transferred to your account? And do you know you will receive the crown of righteousness after you die? You see, righteousness and the forgiveness of our sins is absolutely necessary to be saved, to have a relationship with God, to have the gift of eternal life in heaven with Him. Without Christ's righteousness, without the future hope of the crown of righteousness, you are not saved. You will not go to heaven. You will be condemned by the righteous judge. You know, mankind tries to suppress this truth, the truth about death, about heaven, and about hell. Many like to think either death is an end of existence or that after death there is going to be an eternal conscious bliss for everyone and will be united to our loved ones. Well, except for those who are really, really bad people. And those people will either be annihilated or they'll go to a place of suffering for a while. That's what we trump up to believe. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into man's hearts. We naturally, deep down inside, know that we were created to live forever. But we suppress the truth about God's judgment. We suppress the truth about hell. We suppress the truth that it's impossible for us to get to heaven based on our righteousness and anything that we think we might do to try to atone for our sins. See, we'd like to think that we can get there on our own. But this is not what the Scriptures teach. Let me ask you these other two important questions. If you were to die tonight, would you know for sure that you'd be in heaven with God? And if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Well, the only way to know that you will be in heaven is that you trust in Christ alone for your righteousness and for the forgiveness of your sins. We all deserve hell. But God provided the only way to go to heaven through His Son's righteousness and atonement for our sins on the cross. And so I ask you, has your heart been changed so that you believe in Christ? Have you acknowledged your sin and transferred your trust to Christ alone for your salvation? That is my prayer. My second application point is this. When a person becomes a Christian, the perspective of that person's life changes radically. Paul saw everything that was happening to him, that happened to him in the past since he became a Christian, and that would happen to him in the future as part of God's plan. His perfect plan. Part of the race that was marked out for him. 
Every circumstance he looked at as a way to sacrifice himself as a result of the grace that he had already experienced to give an offering to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, not in order to gain heaven or salvation. No, as a result of receiving the free grace of God, he saw his life as a sacrifice to the Lord, a form of worship. He also saw his Christian life as a battle in which to engage every day using the armor of God, the gospel. He also saw the Christian life as a marathon to be run every day with the goal of finishing. He also saw his Christian life as a life of continual faith. Faith in the sound doctrines of Scripture. Faith in the gospel. Nothing done with these objectives was wasted. Your labors for His glory, your suffering for His glory is not in vain. How about you this morning? Are you going through a struggle? Are you suffering with something? Are you going through a crisis? Or perhaps you're enjoying a a blessed time, a pleasant time. Whatever it is, the perspective that we all are to have about life is Whatever we do is for the glory of God. It's to be an offering to God. We are to fight the battle. We are to run the race. We are to keep the faith. And we can do this because our warrior, Jesus Christ, went and accomplished all of this beforehand for us. What did He do? He gave up Himself perfectly for us as an offering What did he do? He gave his life as a perfect offering, pouring himself out for us and fought the ultimate battle for us. He ran the race perfectly for us. He kept the faith. And so we are in him. And because we are in him, we are more than conquerors. My third application point is this question. Do you long for the appearing of Christ and what it will mean for all people? I stated earlier that it's very interesting that at the end of verse 8, how Paul describes all those who will receive the crown of righteousness. How did he describe them? As those who have loved Jesus' appearing. Now, he could have just said, all those believers will receive the crown of righteousness. But he wanted to emphasize the fact that believers will also long and love Christ's appearing. Why is that? See, when you become a Christian, you're brought into intimate union with Christ. You have an intimate relationship with Him, and as you mature, mature, you grow in that sense of intimacy with the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you grow in your intimacy with the Lord, you see that your treasure is in Christ in heaven. And so you long to be where He is. You long to be in His presence. You long to see Him. And as we do this, we want to see Him face to face. We long for His second coming when He will consummate the kingdom. When He will bring about the completion of our salvation. 
He will physically raise our dead bodies out of the grave. He will unite them to our souls. We long for that day because we will then be made complete, perfect human beings. We will enjoy His presence in eternity. Paradise will be restored. The garden will be restored. You know, the early church longed for the second coming of Christ. But sadly, that isn't often on our minds, is it? I think we need to repent of that. Perhaps it's because we're often looking to this world for our comfort, for our peace, for our joy, for our security, rather than looking to Christ. See, I imagine that suffering Christians in different parts of the world, like the Ukraine, like China, like North Korea, like various parts of the Middle East where society is hostile to Christianity, where life is very difficult, those believers long for the second coming of Christ. But we look to the comforts of this world rather than to Christ oftentimes. In addition to this, I want to leave you with what else goes with longing for Christ's appearing, and that is knowing that He will come as the righteous judge to judge all mankind. When we long for the coming of Christ, we also need to realize that those who are not justified by faith in Jesus Christ as the only way provided for their salvation, their righteousness, their forgiveness, those people will be condemned forever. See, the loving of His appearing ought to also compel believers to have a love for our neighbor, to want them to hear the gospel and to respond in repentance and faith so that they will have confidence that they will receive the crown of righteousness. This is what God does in the hearts of believers. He gives us this faith perspective so that what we're going through in the present, what we've gone through in the past, and what we'll go through in the future is all for the glory of God. And we're looking to offer ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord as a result of His grace and to fight the battle, to finish the race, to keep the faith. May God give us that perspective, that faith perspective of life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the grace that you displayed in the Apostle Paul that had this perspective on his life. Lord, may we have that perspective on life. Help us not to waste our lives, but to know that a life of sacrifice for you, a life that's running this race and fighting this battle and keeping the faith is a life of purpose. It's a life of glory. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. Thank you for the power that we have to live as Paul lived in the midst of his dire circumstances. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.